Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used, be it stolen consciously or otherwise, for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle, Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Joe Jackson, the first thing I have to say to you, being Joe Jackson, is that I always, th I always thought you took your name from Anne Moore's Jiven Joe Jackson, but it seems now it came from a Peanuts cartoon. Uh, a couple of, couple of things, actually. <laughs> Uh, Joe 90 was the first I was in this band and they they started calling me Joe 90 I don't know if you remember Joe 90 oh the cartoon thing on the BBC yeah it was yeah. a puppet actually yeah yeah because they reckoned I looked like him which I could never really see but and then there was Peanuts Joe Piano when Snoopy would become Joe Piano this is going this is when I was about 18 all right okay you know? so they all started right. calling me Joe and it just sort of stuck okay well thank you for stealing my name your real name is David isn't it uh, no, my real name's Joe. I had it changed a long oh, time ago. Oh, did you? Yeah, did you? I mean, I've been legally Joe for 20 years at least. Okay, well, we hope we don't confuse readers. Uh, or listeners. Let me say that again. Okay, we hope we don't confuse listeners. In your book, I was reading uh, A Cure for Gravity this morning, and uh, before we get on to the heavyweight influences, there are two pieces of music that, that did uh, the, your earliest memories of, and one was The Runaway Train, right. and the other was... Exodus, which we were just chatting before we went into the air, you didn't know Pat Boone put a lyric to Exodus. But those two songs have, have pivotal importance to your earliest memories. They're the earliest music I could remember when I thought back, you know, because I didn't grow up in a very musical environment at right. all. And what was it about uh, The Runaway Train, which is like when Johnny comes marching home, marching home again? Yeah, it's it? almost a direct rip-off of that, which of course I didn't know at the time. All right. And I think in the book I sort of retrospectively analysed what it was that appealed to me about it, and it was the fact that it starts in a major key and then switches unexpectedly to a minor All right. and then ends in the major. Okay, and you said about Exodus that it has a similar thing. It's like the two themes together. It's they're both kind of the yes. tension between the major and minor too. Right, which, which creates a sort of a yearning quality. Okay. Uh, but you were only a I, kid, so how did you... You just hooked into that instinctively or what? Yeah. All yeah, right. But, you know, later on you, you're able to sort of analyze these things that just but you know the point is that music really is is such a visceral kind of art form and it, it can just sort of go directly to your heart or directly to the base of your spine okay bypassing your brain you know what i mean okay and, well, well i mean would it kill you if we played either the runaway train or exodus it, it wouldn't kill me which would you prefer <laughs> Um, well, just a fragment, you, oh, no, a fragment of one well, as long as it doesn't have lyrics by pat boone <laughs> i don't really mind <laughs> so then it's exodus okay yeah, no, that's good. I actually bought recently, the, I bought it in L.A. where they have this great range of film soundtracks. They, they cull the actual soundtracks from the movies and put them all in one CD. So it's hissy and it's kind of, would it have been mono in the 60s? No, it was a stereo. But it's the original movie soundtrack and it yeah. sounds great. So I can get that, the actual, not what was the pianist who had the hit with it? Fernanti and Teacher or something. Yeah, it was a piano they, duo, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they, popular, they but, popped it right. up. Right, but I remember the orchestral version from the movie. From the movie itself? Yeah. Okay, well, then that's what we play. Yeah, uh, all right. Okay. 
Uh, Joe Jackson, uh, also in your book, you say around the age of 10, you, you made no great distinction between the Beatles and the kinds of Mersey Beats and the Swing and Blue Jeans, Billy J. Right. Kramer and the Dakotas. They all just sounded pretty much and were very attractive to you. Yeah, yeah, it was all the same. It was just a sound. Which was what, though? What was it about? The, it was the, the sound of mid-60s British pop. You know, it was just sort of clangy guitars and sizzling cymbals and kind of raw voices, all a bit distorted and... It was just an exciting sound to me, and the tunes were catchy, and I was very intrigued by it as a 10-year-old. A bit later, of course, I realized that the Beatles were actually much better than all the others. <laughs> okay, they were better than the Four Penny Singing Juliet. Are you kidding? Um, I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> but that was one of the first singles you bought, wasn't it, the Four Pennies Juliet? Yeah, I used to pick up singles in jumble sales and things like that because I had no money. And would you still would you listen to things like that or the Game of Love and the, which I know was another early one and still find any kind of beauty in the harmonies or or, or yeah. think no, I, li I, like, I like all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You think because because I know there was one point when you got into classical music you began to think the Beatles were just four clowns howling yeah 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 and right. it was childish stuff. Yeah. So did you not disown all that pop stuff then later? No. No, I sort of came back to appreciating well all sorts of things, but. I mean, I, I was, I suppose, a bit of an odd teenager because by the time I was 13 or 14, I was a Beethoven fanatic and I'd turned right. my back on pop music. Yeah. That was, you know, that was kid stuff. So later I sort of gradually worked my way back around to appreciating all kinds of music, you know, right. pop, right. whatever. And what is it, if, if, if we wanted to play one of those uh, Mersey Beat or the Mersey Beat, not the Mersey Beats group, but that sound, what song would it be? Would it yeah. be the Beatles then? Well, yeah, I think it would have to be the Beatles. But, uh, but then if I'm going to pick a Beatles track might be a later one so i don't know um that's a tough call picking a beatles song <laughs> <Come on. laughs> damn you've got 10 seconds starting from now uh, <laughs> we can, we can pick, i mean eleanor rigby has always been a favorite all right okay well you can say that then you know that it's not exactly what we're talking about it's not the mersey beat sound because right. it's, it's far more sophisticated no, it's, not, it's george martin's it's, influence yeah but it's 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 still central beatles Definitely. do you want to hear eleanor rigby yeah, that's a good one. You sure do? Because, I mean, you can do a second choice while we're here and we'll edit it later and see which yeah. sounds better. Well, I don't mind. Uh, for maybe, No maybe One is another. That's, for No One. That's a song I've been actually singing in our show because it's one that people forget. Okay, well, let, I'll ask that question again. Is that all right with you? Because I yeah. think For No One, and that's also, was that, is that Paul's? That's more Paul's. Was it Paul's? Uh, yeah, that was yeah, definitely yeah. Paul's. Yeah. Yeah. And it's George Martin's arrangement too. Right. So, okay, Joe, so if you wanted to pick uh, a Beatles tune from, we'd say, the mid-60s, what one in particular stands out in your memory? Well, there's there's millions, but but one I would pick just because it's uh, quite often overlooked is a song called "For No One" from Revolver. All right, and would you say that also is when you listen to that, you apply the adult musician intelligence to it? Do you hear George Martin's arrangement? Do you hear that the melody yeah. is? You, you hear that kind of he very much structured what we're about to hear. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. You give him the credit for that. Yeah, but I mean, I think I give a certain amount of credit to Paul McCartney for <laughs> writing it <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay, let's not take this from Paul. In me. Right. <laughs> Paul writes good melodies. I never never rated Paul as a lyricist. Uh, yeah, well, I always liked John more than Paul. Yeah, you know, yeah. as most of us probably did. But yeah. but then we forget also how how creative Paul was actually in the later days of the Beatles. I mean, he was really the one that was pushing the envelope more so than I mean, John tended to get a bit like oh, bollocks to this. I'm going to yeah. do my own thing, and and he got retro. He went so, back to rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's let's come out of that. Uh, Joe Jackson, I was reading in your book, uh, there's a comment you make on Oasis that they end songs with an extended hell of feedback as though they're anxious for us to know they're real rock and roll bad boys, not a bunch of poofs because their songs have tunes. You kind of relate to that too because as a kid you, you kind of got bashed, you got uh, called names uh, for, for taking up the violin and for getting into obviously tunes. 
um, which, which is really ironic because I only got into the violin in the first place to escape from school sports. Okay. See, when I did sports at school, they used to kick me instead of the ball. And then they, Any particular reason? Well, no, I, just because I was sort of awkward and skinny and they thought I was a weirdo, you know, okay. kids are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, this violin class started and you had to miss sports to join the violin class. So that's why I did it. And then you got bashed for joining. They, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't win. <laughs> But that kind of element of, and it does come out also in your book, and it comes out in some of your latest songs, this kind of element of being a sexual misfit. You know, uh, yeah. yeah, that yeah. was there right through your entire adolescence, yeah, wasn't it? Exactly, Basically, yeah. which, which is what you're very honest and frank about in the book, yeah. that you felt like an outsider at that level. Right. Yeah? Uh, you, do you not like discussing those days or feel uncomfortable? I discuss anything. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Okay, but then you also say that you, you tuned into Beethoven. You said he was an ugly bastard and a misfit and no one understands him. So you're relating to that. Yeah. Wasn't that the aspect of Beethoven as a person, before we even talk about the music that you hooked into? Well, he's always been a heroic figure, not just to me. You know, there's, in fact, someone wrote a book about Beethoven called uh, something like The Artist as Hero or something. All right. You know, a heroic figure, someone who struggled against incredible odds and was greatly misunderstood and, and so on and went deaf and my God, you know, what could be worse for a composer but to did, go deaf? But did Joe Jackson or David Jackson or whoever at the time also feel, I, I identify with him because I feel that way myself? Yeah, yeah, I felt like a misfit and I felt like I wasn't understood. Now, of course, you know, from a more mature perspective, I can see that that's how a lot of people, or maybe even most people feel when they're younger. You know, but you, for some reason, you don't realize that at the time. You think you're the only one. Yeah, but we all don't get bashed up for, for playing the violin. No, you know what I mean? True. That accentuates a feeling of isolation and alienation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So about Beethoven's music, when you heard like the, the symphonies, was it, that you obviously got this sense of uh, heroic element in the music? Yeah, and just reading about the guy and what he, what he went through and all that. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a tremendous sort of positive spirit. And by the time he wrote his Ninth Symphony, deaf as a post, you know, pretty much forgotten. Um, yeah. You know, people thought he was the town drunk. He used to get picked up and thrown in the police, you know, in a cell for the night because he was, he looked like a bum, you know? Right, and out of that came something And out of that came this, this incredible masterpiece. And, and the, the text that he chose for the first time anyone used words in a symphony was about brotherhood of all people, you know, brotherhood S of man, whatever. Sorry, Aiden. Sorry, you cut across. Sorry, Joe. What? Sorry, uh... You were saying about the text that Beethoven used for for the Ninth Symphony that it was about, that it was about heroic themes. No, that I mean, this you know, the first time anyone used words in a symphony, and his his uh, the text he chose was Schiller's Ode to Joy, and about all men shall be brothers, and so on. You know, right. so always this incredible, positive, big, big spirit coming through everything. But you also noticed in him, and you noted in Eroica, the kind of element of humor. And the element yeah. of pointing out that life can be absurd. Though yeah. he's known mostly for the heroic elements of his music, there also was that playfulness which you... Yeah, did. there are many, many sides to it. I mean, he, Beethoven to me is like Shakespeare. You know, he kind of did everything. And uh, no, no one has really done anything that he didn't do. They've just done it in different ways. And when you, when you, you play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and then you go to compose for yourself, do you not feel intimidated by that, by the knowledge of the worth of his work? Well, if I was thinking about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony as I was trying to compose it, it might be a bit intimidating, yeah, but I try not to think about anyone else's music when I'm going to create my own. Okay, let's play for, yeah. for, for people something by Beethoven. Which, which, what should we play? It uh, kind of depends how much time, time it has to take up, I suppose. Not the entire Ninth Symphony. Maybe we should go oh, back to the 78s or the 45s. You first heard them on two minutes right, each side. Right, <laughs> two minutes of something. I mean, I don't know. The Violin Concerto, the Eroica Symphony... Uh, something like that. 
Okay. Just as a matter of interest, you did first encounter Beethoven in that very fragmented way, postmodern way, on singles, didn't you? The uh, symphonies broke up. Into t- yeah. Yeah, at, at some junk shop in Portsmouth. And, you know, I was so ignorant. This, I was, was probably about 15 at the time. Just 14 or 15, incredibly ignorant. I bought 78 RPM records thinking that they were LPs. <laughs> And I tried to play them at 33 RPM, and I couldn't figure out why they sounded so weird. <laughs> All right. And then you had to speed it up and listen to two minutes right, of yeah, Beethoven. Yeah, two minutes at a time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's hear maybe more than two minutes of Beethoven. Okay. All right, you were saying that that probably is the normal pace. I just hear that as much faster than any time I've ever heard it before. But you like that version. Yeah, I liked it, yeah. Apart who, from being a bit chopped up. Who is it? What version is that? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Who's Who's conducting? All right. Okay. Oh, okay. That that, that explains a few things. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. good. I liked it. You like that? Yeah, anyway. Okay, but follow that as you're saying. Isn't it? Okay, let's try follow Beethoven's <laughs> out to joy. As I w- as that started your hands were raised in the air and you were delighted to just hear the first few bars and it reminded me of you as a boy being at a classical concert and your dad saying, would you stop jumping around? I mean, you saying, how could you not be filled with joy at listening? I don't know if it was Beethoven you were listening to then. It was. It was the Seventh Symphony. Okay. It was the first concert I ever went to with my dad. Yeah. And I was like pounding my foot on the floor and sort of jumping around in my seat. And he's like, for God's sake, whispering in my ear, keep, keep still, be quiet. And I couldn't understand why it wasn't, you know, like a rock gig where everyone was sort of down the front in the mosh pit. Oh, right, yeah. Like jumping up and down. <laughs> this was pre-moshing days, though, wasn't <clears throat> yeah. it? But it was airhead guitar banging. You could have done that. Or was it even then? No, it was before the, even the airhead yeah. guitar well, banging, know. wasn't I mean, it? It was the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But at that time, you also, in mid-teens, got into uh, jazz and very much Duke, Duke Ellington. And what was it? You didn't, did you identify it to Billy Strayhorn's tunes or Billy Stray, the elements of the outsider in Strayhorn's music, or would you have even known about that? No, I wouldn't have known about All right. that. So what was it with Duke? Uh, well, I just got interested in jazz. I, see, during my teens, I got interested in basically every kind of music. And I was I was sort of omnivorous. All right. And um, I got interested in jazz. And I really just picked Ellington as, as a sort of um, exemplar of the whole whole genre. Although I have to say, like most great artists, he really transcends the genre. I mean, it almost isn't jazz. It's just Ellington. Yeah, you know, it's classical. It's religious. Yeah, yeah. But, and, but you also, I mean, as a pianist, I know you're influenced by stride pianists. And you began playing that style when you wanted to play in pubs and get, get, start building a career in music. Yeah. But what about uh, the minimalist approach of Duke? Would, would, you, would you have found yeah, that? Yeah, no, he was a great pianist. Yeah. He was very underrated. Yeah, yeah. as a pianist as, a as pianist, opposed yeah. to. Yeah. So if we, wanted, if we were to play something by Duke, can you even remember the first thing by Duke you identified as, my God, this is marvelous? Yeah, I really don't, but I mean, I would, I would just pick, you know, one of the classic tunes, like, not, I mean, not take the A train, it's okay. been done to death, you know, okay. but something like Mood Indigo, maybe, or, or um, in a sentimental mood, you know, one of the slower ones with a nice lush arrangement with maybe Johnny Hodges playing the alto solo. To give like people that. a rest after Beethoven. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's have the afterglow. Okay, Joe Jackson, we're back from out of uh, Duke Ellington. But we can't leave the list of your influences by without kind of referring to the fact that you were into prog rock. You loved, yeah, I was. You loved yeah. Soft Machine. Soft Machine, I yeah. Meant, yeah. All right, because a lot of that music is, is very much derided, sometimes justifiably, as excessive or whatever. But you yeah. still can see, and you saw then, the, uh, the intricate nature of some of it. Yeah, I thought some of it was pretty good, at least at the time. All right. a, lot, a lot of it doesn't hold up. In fact, most of it doesn't hold up very well. <laughs> but, you know, uh, 
there, there are worse things in life than progressive rock. But you had great it. you had great yeah. joy at the concerts, and when you started dating and 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 you kind of transcended yeah. your outsider role for a time, it was to yeah. those concerts you went, wasn't yeah, it? And yeah, yeah, where we, everyone else went. Yeah. yeah. All right, but we, you don't want us to play like Self Machine or Fairport or any of that stuff. They wouldn't really be huge musicals. Well, especially. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we, another influence when you started writing your own songs was Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. I definitely. mean, they were very yeah. much the, the, the role models that you aspired towards. Yeah, because it was, it was sort of pop, but it was jazzy and it was sophisticated at the same time. It was sort of grown up. You know, the lyrics were quite sort of clever and knowing and all that sort of thing. And I, it just seemed to me to be very appealingly sophisticated in an appealing way all right but you uh, did you do say in your book that the great challenge to you from the outset was number one the challenge of writing lyrics mm -hmm. and number two matching the words and music so that it felt right right that that, that was really like the, the, the highest task you, could, you, you you had before you at the beginning yeah and it's really difficult i think i mean writing lyrics has always been hard for me right where do you think you first, I mean, in one of your earliest songs, and it's not, we don't have to play this as an earliest song, but where do you think uh, in, in one of your first songs you did feel, I am getting there, or I got it as close as, as ever? Well, it's some of the songs on the first album, you know, obviously, and then the second album. I mean, if you want me to pick one of those early ones, probably it's different for girls would be one that, you know, I still really like. Okay, because you do, in, in, at the, at the, towards the end of your book, I mean, your book ends just as you get in, as your career takes off. Right. But you kind of, you fast forward through the first two albums, That's and you right. say you still listen to them, and they give you, the, you, you know, you get joy rather than cringe with embarrassment at them. Right. But you kind of get out of them quickly. It's not necessarily how you want to be remembered, is it, for those first two albums? No. All right. But why? why is that? Yeah. Well, I'm not dead yet, for one thing. <laughs> okay. You know, I've still got a lot to do yeah all right but, so it, but a i lot don't know what i'm going to be remembered for obviously it's not really for me to you know it's not it's out of my control but um but you know uh i, w I would rather be well i'd like to be remembered for the best thing i do rather than just the thing that was successful because i was a new artist and there was yeah. a buzz at the time and all that sort of thing all right but you still yeah. stand over some of the early songs oh yeah i mean i think that the the first couple of albums have quite a few good songs on them and then there's a few that i sort of cringe a little bit but but, uh, but, you know, I'm not ashamed of... So something like stuff. it's different for girls. But they also reflect on something that, that I would have even identified when the songs came out. You were calling into question notions of masculinity and sexuality yeah, yeah. In, in real men, which is, which is a little later. Right. So these were reflecting uh, feelings you'd had again in your adolescence and the yeah. feeling of the outsider. Like, is she really going out with him? Or that kind of stuff. Right. They, they were coming from that, that element of your own psychology, weren't they? Yeah, because I, I, I just was always a bit baffled by it all. <laughs> You know, the dating game, the man and woman. Yeah, the, the, the masculinity, femininity. I mean, it's different for girls. Is It's supposed to be a conversation between a man and a woman where the roles are reversed. Yeah. Where he's saying, oh, you know, I don't know about this. I want true love. And my mom always told me, you know, to, to save myself for the right girl. And the girl is saying, oh, come off it. What's all this love stuff? I just want to have sex. Okay, all right, so which was a total reversal of what would have been the pattern in rock at the time. Yeah, but I, but I didn't see any reason why that shouldn't be just as valid as the other way around. And so in that sense, I was, was sort of intrigued and amused by a lot of these stereotypes and sort of explored some of that a bit in some of the songs. Okay, well, let's hear that song. <laughs> Musicians always get the last word in, don't they? I can't get rid of that guy. <laughs> Okay, so he's we still playing with me. He's, he's yeah. on, the, on the tour now. Yeah. Who, who is it? Who's playing? Graham, with? maybe. Okay, that I've known for twenty-five years. Oh, okay, and he had to get the last word. 
I love that ending. <laughs> I hadn't heard that for a while. All right, it sounds good. All right, but and I, I, I didn't mean to offend you earlier by saying, you know, for what records you want to be remembered. But there are other things like Blaze of Glory, which which I think, and uh, the movie soundtracks and all that stuff, which I think is uh, unfairly neglected. And I think, uh, yeah, in, well, in, you know. Like a lot of artists, my, my very early stuff is wildly overrated. Okay. Because I was new and there was a buzz and all that. And people jumped on the bandwagon, and later stuff is wildly underrated. I mean, it's, it happens quite a lot. I think. But you have done, you've done some great movie soundtracks in that, and they are much appreciated by movie movie team, music uh, uh, fans and stuff like that. And directors use it in major movies. So I mean, it, it's recognised at that level. Well, you know, I also just won a Grammy oh. for best pop instrumental album for my symphony, okay. Symphony Number no. One. So, you know, there's there's different levels of interest, obviously, oh. that people have. Well, does that please you? To win a Grammy at that level, I hadn't realised that. Yeah, well, I'll, it's good PR. To win a Grammy for yeah, anything. So, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talk, talk me into the new album. I know that a point, to, uh, just in terms of, you went to a dark period in your life where you lost faith in music. You, you, you lost faith in, uh, right. well, you plunged into depression, and you actually lost faith in all styles of music, and you tried many things to, win, to bring back that faith. How did you yeah. make the journey back to it? It's a bit of a long story, right. but, it, it, you know, it, it just, after just trying everything over and over again, um, I think I gradually ceased to care, really, about what other people thought of. I mean, I gradually got back into listening to music and thinking, well, what do I really love? What music really moves me is important to me, regardless of whether it was popular, fashionable, what anyone else thought of it, and, and so on. And then I, I sort of found my way gradually back in and, and, and with a sort of refreshed attitude because I think b before that I'd gotten too caught up in the business and thinking about singles and videos and all the rest of it, you know, and getting worried about, oh, my God, how can I hold on to this sort of mass audience when new people are coming up every week, you know, right. getting hyped up and what, what am I going to do and all that. And I, it just took me a while to work through that. All right. But you also, I mean, you, you went, you, your marriage ended and you went through kind of just a down period in general. Uh, yeah. So it's like everything things. falling apart at the center. Yeah, a lot, of, lot of things are sort of piled on top of each other. My dad died. You know, a lot, of, lot of things, things happened. But, but also it was just where do I go from here as an right. artist, really? Right. And I, I just decided to more or less turn my back on the pop world, and just do whatever really felt right to me and is exciting to me, and and just let it come out however it comes out. And do you get industry support at that level? Because not many artists are allowed to make that decision and say, I'm going to follow the muse at that level. No, everyone's allowed to. It's just they, they sometimes choose not to. All right. Okay. You know, because they, they basically they'd sell their firstborn for a hit single. All right. You know, so. But not everyone has a record company who says we released that. Uh, well, then, you know, the, the, you can release it yourself. All right, okay. Sell it over the internet or something. You oh, know yeah. what I'm saying? I, yeah, I don't yeah. buy that record company won't let okay. me do what I want to do thing. I, that you hear from so many. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have to be commercial. Yeah, you know, they can't take you into a recording studio, put a gun to your head and <laughs> force you to make a certain kind of record. It's happened. <laughs> um, I don't think so, really. <laughs> we won't mention the artists. So then your new album would reflect absolute personal choice and personal uh, taste, and this, this is exactly what you want to do. Yeah, but that's pretty much always been the case. I think that there was just an an element of, you know, being more concerned about, oh, what are people going to think? And if I do that, will they get it? And so on. And I just had to let go of that. Otherwise, I wasn't going to be able to go forward at all. Okay. You want us to play a track called Happy Land? So uh, can you talk us into that? Um, well, the, the album's about New York City, where I've been living on and off for, for quite a while. And they're all New York stories and New York characters. And this one was based on a true story. that There was a nightclub in the Bronx... Uh, that burned, there was a big fire 10 years ago, a lot of people were killed. And uh, this is just one of the characters that I created in the song. And she's a woman who was there and her boyfriend died. 
Okay. But she's she's not going to let anything stop her from going out and dancing. And that's how she's going to remember him. She's going to go out and dance, have a good time no matter what, even though people are saying she's crazy. And I tried to create something that was, it was sad but hopeful at the same time. And I think I hit it. And I'm not quite sure how I did it even, but sometimes, you know, you just hit it. Well, that's like that major minor kind of tension you were talking yeah. about in the runaway train. That's right. Yeah. You got it. Okay, yeah. well, let's hear the song. Yeah, so that actually, I mean, how, we've kind of brought the story up to date, haven't we? In terms of any particular thing that you feel we didn't touch, touch on in the show that would, would, would lead us out? I mean, I'm only down exactly. to last, you know, because we have kind of, we covered all bases, have we? Aidan, can you? I was can? kind of freeze when people asked me, what would you like to talk about? You know, it's, well, I, um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, just tell me how, sorry, I didn't know, when, did you get the Grammy just this week? Yeah. Shit, I mean, I didn't know, did you know that? No, I didn't know that. For your first symphony? Right. Okay, well, all we read over here was that Bono got it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that's, I had, didn't see the Grammy show last night, it was on, uh, but it was edited highlights, and it just, yeah, they, yeah, they zipped through it. Right, you wouldn't have got that category. Okay, well, you went up against Phil Spector, where, you know, he was up for, or no, Phil Coulter, wasn't he up for one last night, and he failed. The Irish composer. Yeah. Yeah, pianist. He was up for, oh, I think it was Best New Age Album. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, and he... I he was up against uh, William Orbit and... Uh, all right. Faith and Kenny G and someone else. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, I'm pretty sure Kenny G was in there. And when was this first symphony released? There's me... Uh, well, don't tell anyone, but it actually <laughs> came out at the end of 1999, and it was awarded... Oh, okay. <laughs> 2000. Okay, I want to. We so won't. I, I don't know what happened there, but I'll, I'll take it. Like I said, all right. Okay, well, we'll just we'll come out of that, and uh, I'll just read into um, "Stranger Than You," right? Okay, so uh, all right, Joe Jackson, we 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 kind of identified there that that tension of major minor kind of doing something that's joyful out of something that's sad. That's kind of been something recurrent in your music. I mean, is there anything of that in the last track you want us to play, "Stranger Than You"? Uh, no, I think "Stranger Than You" is a very humorous song like a lot of my songs are, um, whether or not people notice, you know, but... Um, this got, it's a, it's a, it was always a jaundiced humour. It was a kind of bittersweet humour, though. Uh, yeah, I think everything I do is sort of bittersweet. I, I don't like sentimentality, really, you know, and I think there can be tremendous humour, but, but somehow it has to be balanced with... Uh, you know, sweet has to be balanced with sour or something. All right. And is Joe Jackson these days more bitter than sweet or more sweet than bitter? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just a sweetheart. I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm, no, I'm not. We must, at all. We must not. point out to listeners that another element of your your lyric writing and music is irony. Yeah, it is quite ironic a lot of the time. But irony is something you have to be careful with. I mean, it, it's a device, you know, that you, you shouldn't rely on too much or use in the wrong way. I think. All right, but, right. But like saying I'm a real sweetheart. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Um, uh, I guess what I should have said is that I'm not bitter. I have no reason to be bitter, really. I. You know, all right, all right. I'm having a great time. Okay, now, but you say there were times when, under the pressures of the music industry or whatever, you 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 would have be, you could have become better. Yeah, and a lot of people do. And it's it's very sad because then it comes out in their music. You know, the music is that poison soul or poison element. Right, or there is no music anymore. You know, yeah, or something. Yeah, they freeze. Okay, so talk us into Stranger Than You, and we can. Uh, it's kind of a funny song again about New York, but this is um, just we were talking earlier about misfits. You know, this is a song about, wait a minute, I'm surrounded by misfits. Um, you know, I thought I was strange, but there's always someone stranger than you, basically. So the, the, the young guy, David Jackson or Joe Jackson, who felt like a total outsider uh, when he was growing up, realized when he got to New York, I'm home. 
yeah, I mean, I'm actually really normal. <laughs> so anybody who feels alienated, disenfranchised, should get on a plane immediately and just go to New York and Joe and put you up. I wouldn't go quite that far. But. <laughs> okay, all right. Stranger than you. Joe Jackson, thank you very much. Thanks. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard, as I said, at joejacksoninterviewer.com.